I mean, this is, I think, something that everybody on all sides of this argument agrees with, that racism was used over and over. Racism was completely encouraged by, by the ruling class, property-owning class in the South, and actually in different ways, ruling classes in the North. the internet you are listening to changed my mind with luke t harrington this is my show where i talk to people who have changed their minds about big important things um i'm luke t harrington an award-winning author of both fiction and nonfiction, and now also a very much not award-winning author of a substack blog um i set up a substack i don't know why it, it seemed like the sort of thing that all the cool writers out there are doing. Um, I'm not sure what I'm gonna do with it yet. Um, if you're unfamiliar with Substack, it's actually kind of cool. It's basically just a blogging service. Like you, you write a post, you put it on the site and people can go to the site and read it, but it's also a newsletter. They can sign up to have your posts emailed directly to their email inbox. Um, so if you prefer to visit blogs, it's there for you, and if you prefer to get email newsletters, which I assume somebody does, it's there for you as well. Um, also, you can monetize it, like you can charge people money for your posts. Uh, I haven't done that, mine is free, um, so you can just go sign up for mine for free if you want. Um, Luke, what are you writing on your Substack? I don't know. <laughs> um, I just, I set it up back in May and I told myself, okay, I'm going to publish something at least once a month on this and I'll just write what I feel like until I figure out what I really want to do with it. Um, so, you know, there's like five, four or five posts up on it. Um, there's, a, you know, a handful of essays. There's one about Dear Evan Hansen, the movie. There's one about um, how I found my literary agent. There's... So the most recent one is an essay about the novel My Best Friend's Exorcism. Uh, I've even published some fiction on it. There's there's a, a flash piece, piece of flash fiction you can read. Um, I don't know. It's probably pretty good. You can go check it out if you want. That's luketharrington.substack.com. Um, but that's not what I'm here to talk to you about. I'm here to talk to you about the conversation that I had with Walter Ben Michaels, who is a professor of literature over at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Um, but what I talked to him about was his seminal book, uh, The Trouble with Diversity, which is a really excellent thought-provoking book that uh, everybody should read. Um, he published it back in 2006. And his thesis was that pushes for quote-unquote diversity are at best a distraction from the real work that needs to be done to undo inequality, um, which eventually, <laughs> about you know 10 years after he wrote the book, he decided was a socialist project, you know, that diversity as practiced in the U.S. just sort of reifies the gross inequalities of capitalism. Um, so that's kind of where he landed. Um, it's not where he was when he originally wrote the book. Um, the book kind of takes for granted that the, the thing we ought to be shooting for is quote unquote equality of opportunity. 
um, which as I've said on the show before, I think is kind of an incoherent concept and he now agrees with me. <laughs> um, so yeah, Walter was a really interesting guy. I enjoyed talking to him. I will flip you over to our conversation and I will see you on the other side. Walter, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Walter is a professor of English at the University of Illinois in Chicago, uh, author of many books, including The Trouble with Diversity, which is what we'll be talking about today. What am I leaving out? What else do you do? Anything? (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, basically that's it. (laughs) I mainly write about American literature, about literary theory. The Trouble with Diversity was a little bit an anomaly for me since it's a political book, but it's also because of what the particular politics are and because the particular claims made in that book, which are basically that class difference matters more and more fundamentally than race and racial difference, that book's been very um, controversial. It's been translated into a couple of languages. I feel like I spent a lot of the last year writing new introductions to it for various other publications. <laughs> and we more often has to go on people's podcasts and their whatever it is and talk about the trouble with diversity. I am say about my other books, <laughs> which are what I mainly do with my life, which is writing sure. American women like Henry James or something. I had had the trouble with diversity on my to read list for a very long time and I just hadn't gotten around to it. I did read it in preparation for the show, rushed through it in about a week. I thought it was really quite good. I guess I, I, <laughs> I confess I didn't realize just how old it was until I was about half, half, a, half a chapter into it. I was like, oh, wow, this is, this is very Bush era in his thinking. <laughs> I, I guess I, I want to start there maybe with like how the world has changed since that book was published. Um, and I, I think what I read was the, um, there, there was an afterword that you wrote in, I think, 2015, yeah, read, 2016. Yeah, you read the book. But I guess, so you can correct me if I'm wrong. Here's my understanding of the thesis of this book, which is essentially that the push for diversity, whether you're talking about racial diversity, gender diversity, uh, sexual diversity, et cetera, is at best just kind of a distraction from what actually drives inequality, which is fundamentally economic. And I think, <laughs> I think what, you, um, what you say in the book is, you know, we, we, we all talk about celebrating diversity. We all talk about fighting for diversity, but diversity is fundamentally something entirely non-controversial. Like people on the left think diversity is good. People on the right think diversity is good. But what the real problem is, is that there is economic diversity. Like there are people who have less money than they need and pushing for diversity pushing for more, uh, more racial diversity in the boardroom, say, doesn't do anything to change that. It just randomizes which people are where. And I guess I was, I tend to have a lot of sympathy for that view. I've got, I've definitely got some strong leftist tendencies. um, And I do think that there's a lot to be said for that, for that uh, position. But as I was reading was kind of gnawing at me the whole time was, okay, so this book was published 15 years ago. 
<laughs> and a lot has changed in the last 15 years. And I feel like... What do you think has changed? Okay, so here's my take. Fundamentally, I, f- I feel like racism or at least racial resentment has gotten a lot more in vogue on the right. And I feel like at least somewhat, you know, leftist political goals have gotten a lot more on vogue in the left, like Medicare for all, for example. But that being said, I do wonder how much of that is more an affectation than anything. I don't know. Do you want to talk about that? It is really true that one of the big differences between from when I wrote the book, which would have been back in 2005, 2006, is that two things. One is that even when I wrote it, it would never have occurred to me that we would have a black president within days. But actually, that made a lot more sense since we had a black president whose liberalism was completely centrist. And mm-hmm. the fantasies of the far right was no way on the left. <laughs> But the thing that really did surprise me was the uh, Sanders campaign, when you had actually at least a moment um, where, no, the kind of um, leftist ideas, maybe super far left, but sort of semi-socialist ideas, and the idea of universal equality played a crucial role in that campaign, where that campaign had a large degree of success. So yeah, in that sense, I would agree with you, but except that I think that you know subsequent events have shown that the Sanders campaign really was more of an aberration than it was a reality. I mean, you know, all the people who were competing successfully for the Democratic or more successfully Democratic nomination this time around were very centrist. I mean, you can see now. So yeah, there's a lot of support for Medicare for all, but there's actually, and there's always been, it's always polled. It polls mm-hmm. people even Republicans. But are right. we getting Medicare for all? No, we're not the slightest bit closer to getting Medicare for all than we were 10 or 12 years ago. But do people talk about, so a big emergence thing that would make a difference would be the emergence of Black Lives Matter. So, you know, on my account, Black Lives Matter is far from being a leftist or leftist kind of set of commitments. Black Lives Matter is like really more of the same with respect to thinking that our fundamental problems are racial and that if we could create racial equality, you know, then we would solve the problem. There's a, a development economists have a term, something they call horizontal equality. Mm-hmm. And horizontal equality is meant to be like racial equality, equality between mm-hmm. us. And in fact, the U.S. has been, you know, always committed on the left or among liberals to something like horizontal equality and never so much to equality itself. But the thing about horizontal equality, this is what, you know, I attacked in the book and what's still, I think, very much present is that right now we've had, we've had for like ever since 1968, growing inequalities between the rich and the poor. If you're committed to getting rid of horizontal equality, if you're committed to making black and white equal, then what are you committed to? You're saying, well, right now, like, you know, the bottom 20% of the population is disproportionately black. And that's for sure true. And it's obvious why it's true. You know, several hundred years of slavery, followed by a hundred years of Jim Crow racism, followed by the leftovers of all that, and no doubt some ongoing racism still, that's gonna produce that disproportionality. And if you flip it on the top, the top 10, 20%, that's black people are underrepresented. You know, white people are overrepresented at the top, a little bit underrepresented at the bottom. Asians are overrepresented at the top, underrepresented at the bottom. So if you create a horizontal equality, so blacks and whites and Asians and Latinx people were all equal as people, 
you would have made a big difference in one sense. That is, black people would no longer be overrepresented at the bottom and they'd no longer be underrepresented at the top. But you've made no advance in equality at all. You know, you've got exactly the same inequalities you've got now. You just have like different skin colors uh, at the top and on the bottom. So like if you're on the left, right, or put it differently, if equality, if more equality, if more economic equality is your goal, the commitment to racialized equality actually doesn't uh, do you any good. (laughs) Doesn't get you at all closer to what you want. So the argument really is, is that people worrying about disproportionality are worrying about the wrong thing. Disproportionality is not the problem. It's the inequality that's the problem. You know, you can think of it this way. It's like, suppose you had a guy who, um, you know, beat, he had, he had two children, you had a boy and a girl, and he beat the boy twice a day, and he beat the girl once a day. Everybody said, this is like outrageous. So this, this boy gets disproportionately beaten. <laughs> I said, okay, I, I finally see the point of these arguments. I will no longer beat the boy twice a day. I'm going to beat the boy once a day, and I'll beat the girl once a day. It's like totally fair. And, but the, obviously, the, the point of the story is that yeah, the disproportionality is not the main problem. It's the beating that's the main problem. You know, so if you're thinking about disproportionality as the problem, you're always going to end up with a differently unjust solution. Whereas if you think about the harm, the beating as the problem, then you're going to think, yeah, we're not going to say boys' lives matter. And you shouldn't be <laughs> that boy twice. We're going to say, no, don't kill anybody. And that's true even for like, you know, think about murder to police. I mean, in 2020, so we're all, I don't think there's any human being who could have seen, you know, as it unfolded in that tape, right? Could have seen George Floyd being, you know, murdered and not felt how awful that was. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and I'm perfectly willing to concede that uh, racism plays uh, a significant role in that. But, you know, it's worth remembering that um, in 2020, more unarmed white people were killed by the police than unarmed black people were. Mm-hmm. You know, people say, say their names. We can all say George Floyd's name. We can all mm-hmm. say Breonna Taylor's name. Almost nobody can say the name of any of the white people who were killed by the police. So right. I'm not saying, no, no, let's celebrate the white people too. That's not the point. <laughs> the point's gonna be, someone's gonna say, okay, well, but, but black people were disproportionately killed by the police. Totally true. They were killed in a higher relation to proportion. Um, than the proportion of the population. But that's just the story of the, you know, of, uh, of beating your kids in the same amount. The goal is not, you would not have achieved a really more just society if you could just make it so that black people were killed, you know, unarmed black people were proportionally killed by the police and unarmed white people were proportionally killed by the police. The point is you don't want a world in which people aren't going to be killed by the police. So when you make it into, um, when you racialize it, what you do is not take a kind of radical stand for some kind of left position. What you do is ignore the fundamental problem that in my view, the left should face, which is the problem of economic equality, the problems produced by capitalism. You ignore Mm -hmm. those problems and instead imagine that you, or or you, as it were, accept those problems and say, yeah, 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 we, we get that there are always going to be inequality, but it's just like unfair when it's produced by racism or sexism. 
Mm-hmm. So that's why I think of something like Black Lives Matter or anybody who's committed, let's say, to the primacy of discrimination in our society as the source of injustice. Those are people who are really defending capitalism. They're not, you know, they're not criticizing it. They're just wanting it to function more fairly so that the people who actually, uh, you know, the people who get killed by the police, the people who don't rise out of the bottom 20%, um, they deserve it. They're not there because they were victims of racism. They're not there because they were victims of sexism. They're there because like, yeah, you had a fair chance to escape and you didn't escape, screw you. Can I hit you with what I think would probably be the neoliberal rebuttal to this? <laughs> sure. Because like I said, I, I, I personally have sympathy for what you're saying, um, but I feel like if, I, if I'm sitting here as a, as a neoliberal and I, I hear what you're saying, I, th- I think there's, 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 a, there's a two-pronged rebuttal here. One of, the first part of which is, um, I, I think the neoliberal would say the problem with a lot, many leftists, if not all leftists, is that they see economic prosperity as a zero-sum game. Right. Like you see it as a single pie that will not get any bigger. And therefore, you know, it's, it's just an endless struggle over this one pie. Whereas the neoliberal would say, my goal is to make the pie bigger, to create more economic prosperity that will lift everyone up. And I think I, I think to continue that argument, the idea is that as more previously uh, marginalized people, as more black people, as more women, as more whatevers are allowed to produce up to their full potential, like to contribute to society to their full potential, the pie will get bigger and will therefore lift everyone up. Yeah. So I would say the second part of that, divide the two parts, the growing the pie part. And then the second part, which is that if you admit marginalized people and there's no expression, it seems to be more mystified (laughs) the idea that the fundamental problem is marginalized people (laughs) i'm old enough to have seen known when that concept in effect was introduced into the academic world and actually in my field um and it's been one of the many despair inducing things about american universities that all everybody's worst ideas make it out to everybody else in the whole population so okay, but but can we can we agree there's maybe something to it though that no, I don't like, think there's anything to it. Okay, okay. Well, let let me let me finish that thought. All right. Yeah, um, sure. the, I, I think the idea. Okay, and you can you can tell tell me tell me this idea is wrong if you want, but I, I feel like I, the I idea is. The <laughs> yeah, you did. That's true. Okay, but I have to tell you why. That's what. <laughs> to steal me on this idea, as it were, to defend it as best as I can. This idea that. You know, until a generation or three ago, if you were born female, that meant you had to stay home and raise kids and bake cookies or whatever, meant that all of these women who potentially would have great new ideas, whether we're talking technology, science, the stuff that makes money, right? Um, They were forced to not share those ideas with the world. And now that they are able to share them with the world, that is theoretically twice as many good ideas out there potentially creating prosperity. I mean, does, does that make sense? Um, yeah, no. What would you say to that? Well, part of it makes complete sense, right? Nothing about my position says that women, black people, poor people, everybody shouldn't have equal access to education and the job market. 
that for sure is completely true. You know, it's that, and I, you know, believe that very strongly. Actually, I don't really know almost anybody who doesn't believe that. There may be some people on some version of the far right, but if you take our version of the right to be the Trump right, which is, you know, in my view, bad enough. I mean, <laughs> even Trump isn't required to think and doesn't, so far as one can tell, think that, uh, you know, women and black people shouldn't have access to education, shouldn't be able to get jobs that work for him. So that everybody thinks that. So yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, the, the, the thing is the question of what follows from that, because I mean, you know, what follows from that is like access to the job market, but the job market is what's structured fundamentally unequally. I mean, what's the mm. largest growing job in America today? Do you know? Not off the top of my head. Yeah. So think back to the Obama administration. What did Obama think was um, like, you know, Obama's code for Obama, sort of giving it away. Obama's <laughs> idea for education. All the kids should learn how to code. Right? Yeah. You know, why? Because the idea was like yeah. computers, the way of the future, all the stuff, the way of the future. Yeah. The, the, by far the largest growing job in the country is, is um, health aid. Comes in two forms, home health aid, you know, people do it at home and um, uh, people do it in the hospital or nursing homes like that. Sure. So uh, what do you think health aids make? Gosh, I'm married to a, a nurse. Okay, so you're <laughs> but, uh, part. She makes more though. Yeah. Well, what do you think? So health aids make about $25,000. Oh, Wow. So you can't really live very much at 25. That's the fastest growing job. It's not like, and after that job, now COVID may change this a bit. After that, this is from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. After that, it was like um, a food, it was salespeople. And after that, it was food service. All the all these jobs make under $28,000 a year. Those are the mm -hmm. fastest growing jobs. Mm -hmm. So yeah, absolutely, let everybody go to college. Let's let the whole, let, do the thought experiment. The whole world gets to go to a college. That was the whole world get to go to a college, but somehow we managed to make it so that every college is good as whatever you think the best college is. You know, Harvard, let's make it Harvard because that's the least the most prestigious college. But actually the fastest growing job is still our home our health aids. Hmm. So what's the big difference gonna be in the world? It's gonna be like those home health aids, those health aids, they're gonna like have really good educations. They're going to have lots of great ideas. Maybe they were like English majors, you know, like me and maybe and like you. And they know a bunch of poems by heart and they know good <laughs> stories and they can recite those poems by heart, you know, while they're ch changing people's diapers in nursing homes. <laughs> and while they're working not only long hours there, but working extra jobs, because guess what? You can't afford to support a family. Um, you can barely support to afford yourself, uh, uh, afford to support yourself in a city like Chicago on $25,000 a year. Yeah. So our economy, and, and why are they making $25,000 a year? Because those are in the main, even including sort of Medicare for all kinds of issues. Those are profit-making institutions. Where does that profit come out of? That profit comes out of, actually, the government's paying a lot of the stuff that goes in there. The profit mm -hmm. comes out of the fact that those people are being paid $25,000 a year. If those people were being paid $50,000 a year, there'd be nothing left over for the executives who make like three to $6 million a year. That mm -hmm. So we haven't yet got to the ethic stuff. We can come back to it because we have to get to the point where I change my mind. <laughs> I don't mean to remind you about the point of your show, but I worked hard on the change my mind thing for you. So we have to get back to that. And these kind of things kind of you know overlap a bit. But the basic 
political point here is that it doesn't matter who you send to school. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can send everybody to school, it doesn't, but it doesn't matter you know, even how good the school is if the labor market is constructed in order for the people who run those nursing homes to make profits. And for the labor market to enable them to make profits, they have to pay. I'm not even ascribing individual ill will to whoever runs your local nursing home. Although sometimes as someone who has a mother-in-law in a nursing home, I, I sometimes feel it, you know, mm-hmm. but um, those people have to pay them $25,000 a year to make those profits. Mm-hmm. And that creates a fundamental injustice. And it's unjust whether the people who work in those nursing homes are black, brown, or yellow. It's unjust whether they're men or women. And it's unjust whether they have a high school education, a Harvard education, or no education. So, and, you know, the, what the neoliberal response to that is, is shut up. <laughs> yeah. So why don't we um, why don't we talk about what you've and you know how how your views have evolved since you published the book? Yeah. So the thing about it is, is that I published the book. The book came out of really an academic book I'd written a few years before. It actually came out of two things. One is I read this academic book it was about race and racism in American literature. It's mm-hmm. mainly about like you know books that probably a lot of people listening have read. Great Gatsby. Sun Also Rises, the great books by Willa Cather, Jeff mm. Archbishop. So mainly about the 1920s. 1920s was a moment when racism was very, very mainstreamed. I mean, very- Yeah, that was the height of the KKK, right? Well, no, the height of the KKK, the height of the first KKK was way back after the war, Civil War. Right. But yeah, that was the height of the second KKK, in effect. Mm-hmm. And the second clan was different from the first. The first clan was exclusively focused on, on black people. But the second right. clan was actually much more focused on immigration than mm-hmm. it was on black people. So the second clan, for example, was its biggest state was Indiana, mm-hmm. where there were almost no black people at the time. They were very focused on Jews, but they were very focused on Italians, they were very focused on Eastern Europeans. And yeah, but you're right. So actually a lot of the race stuff in you know, anybody who's read uh, Hemingway knows that, uh, I mean, it's a very, very brilliant book, but The Sun Also Rises begin with this account of Robert Cohn. So Cohn's a Jewish name. Cohn used to box at Princeton and he was surprisingly good at it till he got his nose bashed in one day and that sort of slowed his career, but it improved his nose. Hmm. So what do we know right from the start in this book? We know Cohn's Jewish, Cohn's Jewishness in some way matters. And Cohn's Jewishness is marked by the purest of racial stereotyping with respect to Jews, hook noses. Mm-hmm. So I was interested in that. Um, and I wrote a book about that. And one thing I was really struck by, though, in writing that book was that um, a lot of the views about race and all that stuff was taking place in the 20s when people really believed that there was like a scientific thing called race, like you could mm-hmm. know that mm-hmm. it was in your body. It was a biological thing. Nobody in the 1990s believed that or nobody admitted to believing that. Everybody was saying, no, race is not a biological thing. Race is what they used to call a social construction. Mm-hmm. That's what, for example, whenever you, every campus, which used to have like maybe a kind of racial center, a multiracial center, or interracial center, started being multicultural. And the whole idea was, we don't talk about people's races. We don't really believe in races. We believe in their cultures instead. But I was really struck by the fact that actually everybody acted as if there still were races. So when you talked about what your culture was, if you and I had a culture, it was white culture. And if you were a black guy, your culture was black. 
it wasn't clear, I won't give you the whole kind of like argument about it now, but it wasn't clear how culture differed at all from race. So I was kind of interested in the question, why, why, why when we actually have stopped believing that there are such things as races, are we still like actually treating everybody as if they belong to races? And mm. why don't we try to overcome that? And if the response would always be, well, we understand they're racist or social constructions. And I would, yeah, but like, you know, when people discovered there weren't unicorns, no one said, there's the social construction of the unicorn. And we should talk about that. So <laughs> no one, it was clear though, it became clear the minute you put the question why that was the case, because even when I was thinking about writing this, you know, other book, the Trouble Diversity book, it was obvious that we'd gotten more and more unequal in American society. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have all the data then. I just started reading about stuff and looking stuff, becoming, you know, not exactly expert, but like journalist expert in how that stuff worked. But basically, if you started looking at the, at the data, you could see that starting in the 1970s, inequality in the U.S. really begins to take off. Mm-hmm. The equal, most equal year that we have on record, records don't go all the way back to the 19th century, in the U.S. is 1968. So you thought, yeah, here it is that economic inequality gets worse and worse and worse. But we never talk about it. We act as if there are no classes in the U.S. Mm-hmm. But when we talk about inequality, we're totally willing to talk about it in terms of race, right. but not in terms of class. So that was the sort of question that, I, that started that book, which is that, why do we keep race going? We keep race going because actually we like talking about race more than we like talking about class. And why do we like talking about race more than we like talking about class? Because actually, if you wanted to solve, although we are a long way then from solving it and a long way now from solving it, but even if you don't make much progress solving it, the problem neoliberal capitalism likes is the problem of racism. Why? Because that tells you that capitalism is basically okay. You just got to make it fair. So yeah, you got to have black people in the, you know, I love the idea. Remember when, when the horrible march in Charlottesville and then mm-hmm. Frazier, who was the black chairman of Merck, the pharmaceutical company, resigned from Trump's like a council or whatever they are. Um, and he was like a hero because he's speaking truth to power. So yeah, Ken Frazier's a perfect version of that. Ken Frazier's a guy who's, here's one way to tell his story. He totally overcame racism at every step in the way and rose to one of the most important jobs in the business world, in the world, for sure in the US. Here's another way to tell his story. The guy is the chair of Merck. Merck's, you talk about Medicare for all, no one can be less interested in like mm-hmm. turning the medical profession into a non-profit <laughs> profession than the person yeah. who chairs Merck. So is, is Ken Frazier part of the solution? Anti-racism wins, or is Ken Frazier part of the problem? So it's obvious to me, but maybe not obvious to everyone, that Ken <laughs> Frazier is much more part of the problem than he is part of the solution. It's fine, it's nice if there's going to be a system in which, you know, People rise unjustly to the top and make other people's lives miserable. Great. It should be open to black people and women as much as it is to white men. I got no problem. <laughs> if you think you're solving the problem of equality, that way you go in the wrong direction. 
Hi, thanks so much for listening. I will get you right back to that conversation, but real quick, I want to talk about the Patreon for the show. By going to patreon.com slash changedmymind, you can become a supporter of the show for as little as $1 a month and help me continue to bring thoughtful, engaging conversations like this one to the interwebs. Um, Patreon supporters get all sorts of cool benefits, including early access to episodes, VIP access to me and my producer Blake, and access to a bonus episode every month. This month, we're featuring a conversation with philosophy professor Justin E.H. Smith, author of Irrationality, The Dark Side of Reason. My producer reached out to him and asked him, hey, what have you changed your mind about? He said, you know what? Nothing. Because I'm a Leibnizian, and that means I think we know everything a priori. It was a really strange, really engaging conversation. Um, I'll let you listen to a snippet of it. Here's him explaining what he meant by that. And, like, that sounds totally insane. It sounds like Leibniz (laughs) was on drugs. It sounds like I'm on drugs right now. But the more you think about it, the more it the more our experiences of learning or of changing our mind actually do sometimes kind of have that character, right? Of being like, oh yeah, oh yeah, I'm actually committed to this. And now that I have it spelled out for me or counted out for me, I see it. To hear the rest of that conversation, go to patreon.com slash changed my mind. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash changed my mind, where you can become a supporter of the show for as little as a dollar a month and help me continue to bring thoughtful conversation to the internet like this one. Thank you so much to all my listeners and all my supporters, and I will go ahead and flip you back over to this week's conversation. All right, so I thought, so the first thing is I had the idea for this book. The second thing was I was getting divorced and I was broke. So one of my former students who had actually started graduate school with me when I was at Johns Hopkins, then left because she hated graduate school, became an agent. And she'd been bugging me to write. We'd had conversation with her. She'd been bugging me to sort of write a book about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd been saying, no, I love the academic world. I didn't care about getting outside of it, but I needed the money. Yeah. So, yeah, so she said she believed she could get me somebody. <laughs> so, yeah, worked out. That part of it worked out good. Um, and if you've read the book, you actually know there's a little kind of a discussion of that at the end of the book about the author. <laughs> so, in writing the book, though, and here's where we get to the, where the mind is going to need to be changed afterwards. In writing that book, I'm thinking, well, you know, I know what I think about why it is that a race is kind of misleading. And I know what I think about the desirability of equality, but I'm kind of like, you know, waffling on what it is I mean by equality here. Because there are several different ways to think about equality. Mm -hmm. One is to think, well, equality means like everybody should have like as much the same as we can get them to have. There should be much less difference between the guy who runs that, you know, the nursing home and the people who work in the nursing home. Right. And the other one, though, which is what Amer- most Americans believe in, which I, too, definitely mm-hmm. thought of myself as believing in, was equality of opportunity. Mm-hmm. Equality of opportunity was, no, everybody should have the chance to succeed. And, you know, a lot of my examples then is from now, because I teach at colleges, and because colleges, you know, universities have come to matter more and more in American life, partly because as American society grows more and more unequal, we need at least a fantasy that the university provides an opportunity for equalizer. If you can have a chance to get into Harvard, 
everybody should have a fair chance to get into a school like Harvard. And if they get in, okay, then they're sort of, you know, used to say made the shade. If you don't get in, you're not, but at least you had a chance to get in. You weren't condemned not to. So I was really struck by the fact that it's mainly rich kids at Harvard, which it totally, totally is. <laughs> the rich kids at all the elite universities are mm-hmm. overwhelmingly dominated by rich kids. So I was thinking, yeah, they're dominated by rich kids, but all the universities ever talk about is diversity. All they ever talk mm-hmm. about. Like, mm-hmm. When I used to give talks after the total diversity came out, you give talks at colleges and universities. And before I would go to one of them, I want to get a little information. You could go on their webpage and within two clicks, you could tell what the diversity statistics were. And even if they weren't very good, mm-hmm. there would be earnest statements that they were trying hard to make it better. I went mm-hmm. to a school, which I won't name, in Northern Iowa to give a talk. And they had like three black guys. And they knew it was a problem. It was like a little <laughs> Lutheran school in Northwestern Iowa. Um, and they just couldn't get anybody to stay. They would literally come try and pick, recruit kids from Chicago. But they would mm-hmm. leave after a semester because they found the whole place kind of like alienating. But no one would ever give you the numbers on how much money those kids came from. Mm-hmm. Um, and when, because of the Obama administration, which was trying to get colleges to be able to prove that they helped improve the economic status of their thing, of their students, while administration started extracting this information from colleges. So now you can go to the New York Times, um, they've got a website that does it, and get the median family income of students at most of the universities in the US. And you find out what was already obvious, which was that they're overwhelmingly schools for rich kids. Mm-hmm. But the data they publish is how many black people they have and how many Asian people they have. Right. Black people they, have. they don't publish like saying, I don't know, a million student family income is $233,000 a year. They definitely don't want to publish that, right? Because that just says, we are for rich kids, but we'd like to have a few more black rich kids, you know, mm-hmm. and like a few more whatever, not next rich kids. So my thing, though, was that point when doing this was thinking, yeah, no one's fighting to let in poor kids at these schools. Mm-hmm. You know, the schools will say, we don't have, well, you know, we don't, at Harvard, for example, you don't have to pay any tuition if you're poor. Hell, at Harvard, you don't have to pay tuition if you make under $180,000 a year. Mm-hmm. You can be super not poor. But the problem was there still were lots of poor kids at Harvard. Why? Because to get the kind of education you needed to get into to score well enough and all those things to be at Harvard, you needed to go to good schools from day one. So nobody from like, you know, the far west side in Chicago, unless you were a fucking genius, you know, yeah. and just transcended everything, was going to have a chance to go to Harvard. It didn't matter whether you could afford to pay or not. If you could get in, they for sure would pay for you, but no one could get in. So my idea really was, I'm kind of like on the fence about what I really think about equality here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that every American, you know, is going to be committed to equality of opportunity. Every mm-hmm. American committed to the idea that everybody should have an equal chance. Mm-hmm. And my job in this book is going to be to show that if you are committed to that, it's not happening. Yeah. And what I try to do is make it happen. So I sort of, I put in a little sentence like even equality of opportunity, which is like the weakest form of equality, but still, but I actually totally went with it. I totally went with it. I didn't worry about it. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a book which properly understood. I mean, it's a little bit, hazy, uh, you know, I try to make things as sharp as possible in the book. And I do make a lot of things sharp, but this part, totally not sharp, because I wasn't even trying to make it as sharp as possible. I was thinking quality of opportunity is enough, but I already had misgivings. Yeah. I feel like 
my issue with the concept of equality of opportunity has always been what even is equality of opportunity? How do you define opportunity? We have, we have a country where some people are, you know, born to uh, born in trailer parks and some are born in you right. know, mansions with trust funds. And to what, to, in what sense can we possibly say those two people have any quality of opportunity? Like, yeah, right. that, but we could say just to defend my old view of this, what I would have said to you if I were, doing publicity for this book 15 years ago. <laughs> yeah, so, okay, how do you start to start? Change that. You, there are some things that are hard to change, for sure, but things like actually a commitment to equality of education across the board would be super helpful. Someone would come back to me and say, yeah, but they're not getting the support from their parents. They'd say, well, yeah, but, you know, you can do things. I mean, this requires a more active state, but I've got no problem with a more active state. The state that I would like was so active that I'm sure many of your listeners would be, you know, appalled at the idea of living on it. But it would be <laughs> that you've got to you've got to and make up for those things, and, and other ways to make up for them would be things that people put forward. Like, okay, you can't get them all into Harvard, but you've got to expand public education. You've got to make public mm-hmm. education free. And actually, I teach at a university which really tries to do that. University, I mean, you know, for the first part of my career, I taught at Berkeley, which is a public university, but in effect so elite that it might mm-hmm. as well be private. And then I taught at an elite private university, Johns Hopkins. But when I came to UIC, um, UIC really is a kind of university that is a serious research university, but is seriously committed. The slogan that everybody has is access to excellence. Most of the kids, or at least half the kids at UIC, would be kids who without, there are very few universities like UIC. It's UIC is one and maybe University of California and Riverside would be the other. Without schools like those, kids who are our students would never be able to attend research universities. Mm. You could never go to Illinois, University of Illinois or Banner, for example. So we have that commitment. And that's an, an effort to do that it would make sense. And you can see what the logic of it is. The logic of it goes with the anti-racism part too. So we were talking before about you know health aids. So coming from a different angle. So who are the health aides that we actually have now? So they're mm-hmm. overwhelmingly women and they're disproportionately women of color. And what would be the goal, right? If you think about the goal, I mean, this is so true in all of our social thinking. The goal is we want equality and this is a kind of equality or opportunity, which would give them the opportunity to, to escape those jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, in a, in a more fairly arranged world, they wouldn't be overwhelmingly women of color with high school educations, they would be like, no, those women of color would have had a chance to go to at least nursing school or medical school. They become mm-hmm. like your wife nurses. They become doctors. They become business executives. They're the people who own that thing. She so would say, mm-hmm. yeah, in a fair society, and this is the complete logic of anti-racism, which is also the logic of equality of opportunity, which is part mm-hmm. of the problem of total diversity, right? Which is that a lot of anti-racism says the racism is the problem here. If we could overcome that racism, then these women, these jobs will be held by just by people like these women. And the idea of equality of opportunity is exactly the same. And the further idea, right, is then someone's still going to do those jobs, but they won't be people who are condemned to doing them by their lack of education, by their sex, mm-hmm. or by their race. So the equality of opportunity thing was exactly that argument. And that is the argument that's the center of trouble with diversity. But it's wrong. <laughs> it's just wrong, you know. It's because you can think of it really easily when you think of it with the, you know, with the with the health aides. The problem is not with who has to be a health aide. The 
problem is with how bad that job is, right? Mm-hmm. The problem is that they're paid less than a living wage. The problem is that they, they're overworked. The problem is they have no autonomy on the job. The problem is that they're supervised to death and that required to work extra jobs and that basically there's not a single pleasant thing about it. And that furthermore, it's a super important job as you will find out the minute you have a relative in one. Mm-hmm. That is, you spend a lot more time right at that moment thinking about whether your mother-in-law is being appropriately cared for than thinking about whether the kids in the classroom next to you are getting a sufficiently good education. You know, mm-hmm. it matters a whole lot more. Someone in the classroom next to you screws up telling them about, you know, giving them misinformation about Shakespearean sonnets, whereas <laughs> your mother-in-law is just not having her diaper changed, right? Mm-hmm. Developing bed scores and all that follows from that because of that, that's something that matters to you. You want those people to like those jobs. You want those people to be good at those jobs. You want those people to like mm-hmm. look at those and they mm-hmm. work for them. So we don't have any of that. Equality of opportunity not only doesn't solve that problem, it makes it worse. What it says is we don't have to worry about the jobs. We have to worry about giving everybody a fair opportunity to get a better job. And when you think, go back to what I said before, that's the fastest growing job. Mm-hmm. It's the largest growing job. It has the largest growth in it. We should not be worried about getting people to escape those jobs. We should be worried about a world in which people want those jobs. It's not good for you. It's not good for anyone. It's not good for the American people. So it's not like I didn't have friends and indeed loved ones who are aware that, uh, of this mistake I was making. I was just kind of like not thinking it through and not worrying about not thinking it through because it completely worked for the way I decided to write the book. You move beyond equality of opportunity. Where would you say you've landed? What, what would you call your position now? Yeah, so it's just much more, I mean, it's still kind of open-ended the angles. We don't know how to do this exactly, but much mm-hmm. more straightforwardly committed to a socialism, which mm-hmm. would A, take the profit out of those. Um, stick with a nursing home example, but stick with Medicare health, stick with health and education in general, start with, take the profit out of health and education, but beyond taking the profit out of health and education, take the possibility of privacy out of health and education. I did have a little thing in the Trouble Diversity, but I can't know whether it survived it anymore. I haven't actually looked at the book in a long time about a kind of wistful way abolishing private schools. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I'd love to see private schools abolished. You know, I'd love to see, love to see all those things sort of given to the state and they're not run for profit. And where, in effect, you know, the salaries of the person who ran the nursing home would be like $5,000 more a year than the salary of the person who was working in the uh, uh, in the bedroom. Sure. In the, sure. So that's not really a, a thorough answer. It's just a principle, right? The principle yeah. being that you want to take the profit away as much as possible. So the commitment was much more to socialism, democratic socialism, but socialism. Here's something I've been wondering about, just in general, but also um, as we've been talking now, and I'd, I'd love to hear your your thoughts on this. Do you think that, I don't, I don't think it's terribly controversial to say the a true left a socialist left or quasi-socialist left or whatever is probably more anemic in the u.s than in almost any other developed democracy that you know there's basically there's almost no no left in our politics and i guess I'm, i'm wondering do you think that part of the problem of developing a a left in the u.s is that 
rifts between races and ethnic groups are so much deeper than rifts between class. I mean, for sure. I mean, look, everybody gets, that was the whole point of racism. I mean, that was, if you go back and it's no accident that sort of early union guys in the late, in the 1890s, like populists, they had unite, the black and white unite and fight as a motto because the whole point mm-hmm. of racism was to undisunite black and white. So there's, you know, I mean, this is, I think, something that everybody on all sides of this argument agrees with, that racism was used over and over. Racism was completely encouraged by, by the ruling class, property-owning class in the South, and actually in different ways, ruling classes in the North. And it was encouraged in lots of ways. I mean, here's a pure version of it. It doesn't involve black and white, but there's a famous story about a big, uh, there was a strike in, the, I think it's the Pennsylvania oil fields. It's back in like the 1880s. And it's a violent strike, as those strikes tend to be, because they were fought with violence. And right. these are workers are trying to keep people out. They're trying to shut the thing down. And um, the owners couldn't get anybody from anywhere around to cross that picket line, out of mm-hmm. either principle or out of fear. Um, so they went down and they took a bunch of people off the docks in New York. They had a bunch of they had a, ships coming in from Italy. So this is a mm-hmm. high period, right? High period of American immigration. Mm-hmm. Highest periods have been you know, basically the 80s and the 90s, and then the 1880s and 1890s up to about 19, well, almost up to World War I. Mm. Uh, so they put a whole bunch of Italians. They mm. put them on train, they take the train up, and, you know, the guys who are not that interested in the fact that they're white, they're just workers, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but their ethnicities are whatever they are. You know, they're probably Eastern European. They might be Eastern European. I, mean, I have no idea what their ethnicities were. But they're suddenly aware that there are a whole bunch of these guys, Italians, who are actually busting their strike. Mm. And suddenly, suddenly, whether they ever had views on Italians before at all, they become vigorously <laughs> anti-Italian. <laughs> and why are they anti-Italian? It's not because, like, you know, there's so much academic bullshit about the fear of the other. And the mistress mm. of the other. These like Italians don't come to us like, oh my God, I don't know, these guys have a different language. They look a little different from us. They're some other from us. You know, we have to form our social cohesion, cohesion <laughs> by, by, by putting them on the outside. None of that. It was like, these guys are taking our jobs. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that was actually standard operating practice, right, mm-hmm. in, in, in the U.S. and much more often with black people than with white people. Mm-hmm. So I'm part of the point. So there were two things. I mean, there was the thing that, yeah, and what you wanted is if you have a labor market and you're afraid that all that labor will unite against you, you want to remember that the years in which Jim Crow took hold were also the years of the biggest labor unrest in the U.S., mm. 1870s, mm-hmm. 80s, 90s, huge strikes, huge riots here in Chicago, that what you wanted to do was, first of all, above all, you didn't want that labor force to unite. You wanted mm. black and white, unite, don't unite, fight instead each other. Mm-hmm. So basically, it was completely in the ruling classes and capitals and factory owners and every employer's interest to like have racial division. Because if you got racial division, then you don't have the possibility of like the entire working class, black and white, uniting and trying to assert its rights. So I have no doubt that it is in some sense importantly true that racial division has been part of the difficulty of forming a coherent left in the U.S., and indeed, you know, what you want to say is that capitalism, when it could get racial division, has always liked racial division. Mm-hmm. Actually, in a way, even likes it now, because just as racism did the job of 
ununiting the working class in the 1880s and 1890s, anti-racism does a lot of that work today. Mm. I mean, who is most characteristically blamed? When I start talking about unions, still to this mm. day, the unions picked up. When I first started talking about unions again, this 10 or 15 years ago, first thing someone in the audience says, but unions are racist. Identify the unions with racism and start thinking it's white working class racism. What's the mm-hmm. whole mythology about the Trump voter? The Trump voter is a working class white racist who's feeling you actually use a term, a term I loathe more than almost any other. I forgive you for using it. Racial <laughs> This guy's <laughs> racial resentment. Like, you know, what you do is spend years fostering racial resentment, trying to make sure to bring his black men. Now all the bosses are like, no one can be more anti-racist than the boss who's making every worker in the place read white fragility. Right. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And and what's the point of it? The point of it is it absolutely does the same thing. It absolutely uh, disunites white black workers. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So that now these black workers are coming for their jobs. That was kind of racist version of the white and the white people. The white, just as like you told black people in the 1880s and 1890s that the most important thing about them was that they were black. Mm-hmm. And now you're telling white workers the most important thing about them is that they're white. Mm-hmm. And other people are coming for their jobs. So you get the whole racial resentment thing. People say, well, you want to draw a line between, you know, the economic problems and racial resentment. But you can't even explain the concept of racial resentment mm-hmm. without locating it in the political economy that produced it, insofar as it is a real thing. So there's a way in which, yeah, you want to say right now, anti-racism functions to do a version of what racism used to do. That is, it manages to make it sound like the biggest problem or how some of your workers feel about your other workers, as opposed to the biggest problem being how you manipulate mm-hmm. all your workers to take as little money as possible so that you can make a problem. Yeah, no, I mean, I absolutely agree with that. I, I guess the follow-up question is, <laughs> do you see a solution to that? Like, yeah, well, no, what? No. no, okay. <laughs> I'm not feeling too optimistic. I had my, I had my six months of like um, delusional optimism. In the when last, Bernie was running? Or? <laughs> the last six months of the Sanders campaign in 2016. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. It was like, whoa, this sort of came out of nowhere, except that it doesn't come out of nowhere because a lot of what you saw, you know, was people, um, black and white and Asian and Latinx, always people like thinking, and especially the college ones, we've been promised. I wrote a little piece called, Dude, Where's My Job? Because <laughs> all these things people say, well, we've been promised if we did all this stuff, you know, mm-hmm. we'd be the winners. And it was suddenly looking after the recession, you mm-hmm. know, got Obama in. And then Obama's complete unwillingness to do anything about any of these fundamental issues. Right. Why do people like Sanders? They like Sanders because, you know, the complaint was all he ever talks about is one thing. But all he ever talked about was the one thing that actually people really care about. They want the yeah. have enough money to live decent lives. Right. right. That was a crucial thing. So there was a way in which you felt, yeah, a lot of people are realizing it, not really because they've been convinced by the arguments, but as I was not under the illusion that they had read The Trouble with Diversity and said, hmm, so true. They'd been convinced by the world, right? They'd been convinced mm-hmm. by the world. They'd lost, if they'd started out good, they lost their houses. If they started out bad, they thought everybody else was losing their houses. They were, they people, you know, but of course in the US, this immediately has turned into generation disquiet. It's not workers. It's like, so instead be mad at boomers. It's like, be mad at boomers. Don't be mad at capitalism. Be mad at boomers. Mm-hmm. Don't be mad at <laughs> capitalism. Be mad at immigrants. Don't be mm-hmm. mad. There's always like, 
everything where we have grievance about is grievance about it instead of about capitalism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Saying, capitalism needs that growing gap between the rich and the poor. Today, the inability even to like pass a, the kind of tax that would tax like the most egregiously awful the billionaires is a mark of the degree to which people have successfully convinced people that the problem is not in the end capitalism. It's in the end unfairly administered capitalism. Mm. You know, it's like a, less, like a less racist capitalism. And maybe if we had better taxes on capitalism, mm. all these ways of trying to save something. Whereas I think, you know, the basic problem is capitalism itself. You know, you're not going to, Back to why I'm kind of skeptical that having not, you know, get the women involved. Yeah, that just means you're going to have like women running these companies, which you sort of do now, but not enough. I always mm-hmm. thought it was a kind of pure version of this with feminism. Was what did you think? What's the point of your feminist point of your feminism that in a Fortune 500, instead of there being only like three percent of women, which is outrageous, but uh, running these companies, be fifty percent. Mm-hmm. So yeah, why is that better? It's better for those <laughs> women. It's better for a couple yeah. hundred. And then it's supposed to be better for all the little girls who can think one day, I have a chance to do that. But of course, statistically speaking, you don't have a chance to do that. Right. 250 people are going to be able to do that. You don't have a chance. That's just a complete delusion. You have a chance. So what are you thinking? You're thinking, I'm going to feel better about the fact that, you know, the job I have, which A, I don't love because I'm supervised to death. B, every Mm -hmm. time I get a message from HR, I live in fear. Now that I'm going to be called out as racist. Um, because mm-hmm. I didn't do that well on my white fragility, uh, you know, training thing. <laughs> and C, you know, they can call me at any time. And D, I have no child care around, all those things. But you know what? It's not so bad because the person in charge of this is a woman. So yeah, that just doesn't seem like a happy ending to me. But <laughs> it does seem like the ending we've got. And the change of mind thing was, if, I, if you stick with equality of opportunity, you're just going to have an ending in which then they're able to look at you and say, dude, you had a fair chance to become me. And you didn't succeed, mm-hmm. so screw you. You're not only poor and overworked and insecure, but you deserve to be poor and overworked right. and insecure. Congratulations. We're almost at the hour, so let me let me ask you a few questions and then we'll wrap up. First of all, aside from your changing beliefs themselves, what would you say you learned from the experience of changing your mind? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, <laughs> I think I learned a lot from the look in my wife's eyes when she said it's about fucking time. Hmm. Which was that, you know, people people can see as that sometimes people can see the problems with the things you believe more clearly than you can. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I don't think I know that, um, you know, for many people, maybe for different kinds of things, if you're really committed to something, it's an earth shattering that, you know, changes your sense of who you are. For me, it was just like, yeah, don't think a little harder. You know, I wasn't really thinking hard enough. And I wasn't thinking hard enough because I was thinking, to write this book, I don't have to worry about this problem. <laughs> I can just write this book under equality of opportunity and mm-hmm. the arguments I want to make are really going to work. And that really wasn't true. I just wasn't thinking harder. So, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know that I learned much more than that. Um, but that is something important, which is like, it, or useful anyway, which is mm-hmm. to try to take, try to take your arguments to the extreme. Maybe the extreme's wrong. But in trying to take them to the extreme, at least you figure out what's required of them. Whereas in my case, sort of saying, no, I'm not going to worry about the extreme part. I'm just going to sort of stop right here because this works for me was not helpful. Sure. Sure. All right. I have three final questions. I ask all of my guests. Um, yeah, I'm going to say these are the ones you sent in advance. I can't yeah. Single one. 
<laughs> Should I not try? <laughs> well, I, you can do what is identity, because I can say identity. There is no such thing. <laughs> I think we might agree about that, actually. Yeah. So let's start there. What is identity? There is no such thing. I'm with that. Yeah, not well, let, me follow, let me follow that up then, because uh, why do so many people believe in identity? Yes, okay. <laughs> is there such a thing as personal identity? Yeah, there must be such a thing as personal identity, and lots of philosophers are interested in what it is and how that works. But insofar as we're interested in identity today, or not insofar as, but a lot of our interest in identity today is precisely our interest in racial, cultural, gender identity, and stuff like that. And I think, yeah, that's always a mistake. It's a reification. So it's making into a thing, something which is nothing but a collection of behaviors. Um, sure. And, you know, a really good way to see it is to think about how we kind of have this mystification version of it is with an example from race or culture using the same. So it's fair and very, very popular right now, the whole idea of mixed identity, right? Mm-hmm. Multiracial. So if you think of someone as like, you know, you know, someone who will be whose mother is Chinese and whose father uh, is white, that'd be a mixed race. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you can see how really that's a problem. I mean, think if you have a mother who's like really smart and a father who's really stupid. <laughs> that sounds like my kids. No, I was kidding. <laughs> so your kids, hopefully, however, will never describe themselves as being a mixed intelligence. Mm-hmm. They don't even have the concept of mixed intelligence. If you're like, tall and your wife's short. Your kids aren't of mixed height. You know whatever <laughs> height they are. So yeah. You realize you have to have, you'd have to be thinking of height as this kind of like magic thing which separately in each of the parents and then somehow melded in them so they were half of one and half of the other. Whereas height's just a thing you are. Nothing to do with identity in the strong sense, just identity in the weak sense. You could be identified as being five, eleven and a half or whatever. So I really think that if we can recognize like that there's no such thing as mixed race, there's no such thing as mixed culture, we would see that no, there's, there's nothing to identity any more than there is to height. So if you want to say, yeah, your identity is your height, your weight, the things you actually like, the things you don't like, all that, fine. But that is just descriptive, just a description. Whereas the identity we like is a description plus a responsibility. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want to be disloyal to my culture. I want mm-hmm. people to respect my culture. There's an ad going around, so now that was about Halloween stuff, which is against people dressing up as like Native Americans for Halloween. And the mm-hmm. ad is, you know, my identity is not your culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sorry, my culture is not your costume. My culture yeah. is your costume. Yeah. Yeah, screw your culture. Culture is just whatever it is we do. You know, mm-hmm. the piety we have to have to our culture, which is either we do it or we don't do it. You know, is it part of your culture to like classical music? Well, basically, classical music is part of your culture if you like classical music. If you don't mm-hmm. like classical music, it's not. People are not disrespecting you if they decide mm-hmm. they don't like classical music. Um, and it's not the case that classical music somehow belongs to white people. To think that, you have to think, ah, well, white people, there must be some biological essence that makes them white. <laughs> All that's garbage. We don't believe that part of it, but we really hang on to the idea of identity. So, yeah, I think that we should... Identity is a snare and a delusion, and we should just give it up. What is human nature? I have zero clue. What is truth? <laughs> what is truth? I think is a, a bad question to ask, but I have. <laughs> I think we are. I mean, I think part of the point about it is we already act as if we know what truth is, so we're cool with that. Mm. You know, I don't. I mean, we disagree a lot about what the truth is, but 
we all sort of act as if we all sort of kind of pragmatist answer is, you know, do you think there's a window behind you? And you're minute looking out there saying, yeah, there is a window behind me. And then somebody else saying, no, I think you're mistaken. I think it's a drawing of a window behind you. You would already both have strong views on what truth was. That is to say, truth is whatever it is, the case that is behind you. And we need some idea of whatever it is that is the case. Um, yeah. We already have it. We can't help but act as if we have it. No one's ever failed in practice to have an idea of what truth is. Where we fail is knowing what truth is. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. We have an idea Absolutely. of what truth is, but we don't know what actually is true. We don't know what is true. <laughs> is the story. Uh, but I feel I know what is true about two or three important things, one of which we've been talking about for the last hour. all right well i have had so much fun talking to you walter thank you so much for coming on the show thank you for having me i've actually enjoyed it very much i listened (laughs) to the others in preparation for this and they were also fun to listen to so as i said i won't listen to this one because i never do but i hope at least some of your some of your listeners do and that they enjoy it well before we um go do you want to tell listeners where they can find you where they can find your work yeah, so, I mean, The Trouble with Diversity is, is the English book that, I mean, is out in English. It's not been updated since 2016, and it probably won't be in the near future. Coming out, I mean, I don't think our listeners are going to care about my literary critical, literary theoretical work. And believe me, I don't blame you. It's written for like 500 people. And if you are <laughs> 500 people for whom it's written, you already know about it. And if you're not, you can just let it go. Um, that's one of the beauties of the academic world. That you can do a certain kind of work about things no one cares about. Or no one but um, Adolf Reed and I, Adolf Reed is a person with whom I often write and talk, think a lot. There's a collection of our essays coming out um, this spring, which you could look for. We don't actually have a title yet, but the kind of working title is Class Trump's Race. Sounds like something worth reading. We'll be sure to check that out. All right. This has been Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. You can email the show at changedmymindpod at gmail. You can find us on Twitter at changedmindpod, or you can find me at Luke T. Harrington, and I will see you next time. There was a um, document getting passed around Twitter the other day from the AMA, the American Medical Association, which is, of course, the uh, professional and lobbying organization for American doctors. Um, It's a document called Advancing Health Equity, a Guide to Language, Narrative, and Concepts. Um, And the bits that were going around Twitter, at least, were just this enormous list of orthodoxies and euphemisms doctors are now supposed to use, according to them, (laughs) instead of using more straightforward language. So there's these charts. And for instance, instead of low-income people have the highest level of coronary artery disease in the United States, instead of saying that, you're supposed to say, People underpaid and forced into poverty as a result of banking policies, real estate developers gentrifying neighborhoods, and corporations weakening the power of labor movements, among others, have the highest level of coronary artery disease in the United States. And instead of saying, 
For too many, prospects for good health are limited by where people live, how much money they make, or discrimination they face. Instead of saying that, you're supposed to say, decisions by landowners and large corporations increasingly centralizing political and financial power wielded by a few limit prospects for good health and well-being for many groups. And this chart just goes on and on like that. It's the sort of thing that's just super, super cringy, even if you're like predisposed to agree with many of the ideas it expresses, as I tend to be, you know, mainly because it expresses them in a way that comes off very insincere and in a context that makes no sense at all. <laughs> that context being the context of a doctor trying to give uh, solid and easy to understand medical advice to his or her patients. Um, Anyway, it's very, very silly, um, but among the people who were passing it around, many were very quick to point out that the AMA has actively lobbied for decades to keep these realities as they are, right? The AMA in the 50s and 60s lobbied very heavily against Medicare, um, going so far as to send out an LP a vinyl record of uh, Ronald Reagan preaching against the evils of socialism that doctors' wives were supposed to play for their friends. Uh, <laughs> it's real. Look it up. Um, the AMA has been actively lobbying against uh, Medicare for All in recent years. Um, the AMA has been actively lobbying to limit the supply of doctors in order to artificially inflate doctors' wages, because um, we all know doctors need to make more money, right? Um, <laughs> and it's like, hey, speaking of decisions by landowners and large corporations that have limited prospects for good health and well-being for many groups, um, that's you guys, you know? You are the landowners and large corporations, AMA. Um, and so what we have here is an organization that's essentially an economic cartel, an organization devoted exclusively in its activities to lining the pockets of its members, um, but one that wants to be perceived as being progressive and on the side of the downtrodden or however you want to put it. Um, and it's like, what's going on here? Um, now, Karl Marx wrote about a class he referred to as the petty bourgeoisie, or the, the small rich people, if you don't like French, um, which basically would refer to people with money, but not the truly rich, right? The, not the people that own the means of production, not the, not the really powerful um, business owners, but you know the professional class, um, what we would now call the upper middle class or the professional managerial class, um, people who have money and whose efforts are focused mainly on keeping the relatively small amount of wealth they have, the class that you would expect to include doctors, you know, rich but not super rich. And I think Karl Marx's uh, observations about this class are really instructive here um, because Karl Marx says that the efforts of the petty bourgeoisie tend to focus most of their efforts on public performance of morality in order to shore up their wealth and their privilege, to justify the wealth that they have and hopefully to increase their wealth 
over the other members of the petty bourgeoisie class. Now, I'm not an expert on Marx. Someone who's read more Marx than I have will probably correct me about some of that. Um, but I do think it explains very well what's going on with documents like this one from the AMA, with documents that very publicly perform a sort of political correctness, if you will. Um, now, I hate the term political correctness. Everybody hates the term political correctness because it, you know, the second it was coined, uh, Fox News types started using it as a weapon. Um, but I don't, you know, I mean, there are other words for this sort of thing that are also frequently used as weapons by the Fox News crowd. Wokeism is one. Um, but what we are, you can call it whatever you want. Um, but what we're talking about is public performance of morality designed to reinforce the privilege of the powerful without actually changing any of the immoral acts that it often points to. Um, because those, those two things are literally diametrically opposed, right? Um, this AMA document opens with a land acknowledgement. We acknowledge that this document was written on Native American land, but they're not going to give the land back, you know? <laughs> that would completely undermine the actual purpose of this document. Now, we just had a round of elections in the United States a couple of weeks ago, a lot of state and local elections um, that were generally perceived as a drubbing for Democrats. Uh, Democrats did not do well. The um, Democratic incumbent governor of Virginia lost by like 15 points, I think. Um, Seattle actually elected a Republican to city attorney, which Seattle never never elects Republicans to anything. Um, so, yeah, something's going on here. And I think fundamentally it's people frustrated by a quote-unquote left-wing party that is all about using the correct euphemisms and expressing the correct orthodoxies, but doing nothing to actually help the people that they claim to be concerned about. Um, and I think fundamentally that's what you get when you put the petty bourgeoisie in charge of your quote-unquote left-wing party. You get a lot of public performance of morality and no actual morality, <laughs> no actual change. Um, now, what's interesting is that polls show that some moderate left-ish reforms are, in general, really, really popular. Medicare for all is really, really popular. A $15 minimum wage is really, really popular. Uh, universal um, maternity leave is, like, really, really popular, even among Republicans. Like, a majority of Republicans will endorse these things. And we saw this in, um, in Florida uh, in 2020 when the statewide Donald Trump won the presidential election, but the state also voted for a $15 minimum wage when it was a proposal on the ballot. So all these quasi-leftist reforms are really popular, but what people hate, what they really hate is quote-unquote political correctness, right? And it's not just like, oh yeah, those racist white people, they hate political correctness. You look at polls, people of color hate political correctness at about the same rate that white people do. Young people hate political correctness at about the same rate that old people do, right? The only group that consistently says, no, political correctness isn't a problem is guess who? Wealthy, 
white professionals, the petty bourgeoisie, right? And so we have a situation where actual economic reforms that would actually benefit the disenfranchised are enormously popular and the euphemistic flowery language that we use to show we're quote unquote on the side of the disenfranchised is incredibly unpopular, but you have the quote unquote left-wing party doing everything they can to enact real basic reforms and just doubling and tripling down on the euphemistic language because apparently the Democratic Party hates winning elections. That's the only explanation I can think of here. I don't know. They got pounded in the last election and they deserved it. And unless they can find a way to actually change the way things work for the people that would vote for them, they'll get pounded again in the next one. Anyway, that's it for this week. Um, If you appreciate what I'm doing, please uh, go on to Apple Podcasts and give me a rating, give me a review. I really appreciate those who have. It helps the algorithms find the show. Um, If you want to support me financially, there's a Patreon. Um, You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month by going to patreon.com slash changed my mind. Um, You are not being asked to support it in exchange for nothing. There are benefits for patrons. If you support me at the $3 level, you will get early access to episodes. If you support me at the $5 level, you will get early access to episodes and bonus episodes. We have a bonus episode this month featuring philosopher Justin E.H. Smith. Um, It was a really fascinating conversation. Um, He is obviously much smarter about philosophy than I am, but he he was very generous to me. Um, Really enjoyed talking to him. Um, And if you support us at the $10 a month level, you get access to our top secret meetings. Um, No, it's fun. Uh, My producer and I, we have monthly meetings and um, on Zoom. And, you know, you can come on and suggest ideas for the show or just be a fly on the wall if you prefer. Um, So, yeah, go to patreon.com slash change my mind to support the show. If you want to email the show, it's changedmymindpod at gmail.com. If you want to tweet at me, it's Luke T. Harrington on Twitter. Change My Mind is produced by Blake Collier. It's edited by Jonathan Clausen, and it's presented by Raven Creek Social Club. I'm Luke T. Harrington. Thank you for listening to Change My Mind. And don't be afraid to change your mind.